I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Strange Days. Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wired tripped? Do you know anything about hackers? Can you jam with the console cowboys in cyberspace? Ever read Neuromancer? You ready? This is not like TV, only better. This is life. It's a piece of somebody's life. It's about the stuff that you can't have, right? The forbidden fruit, straight from the cerebral cortex. I mean, you're there, you're doing it, you're feeling it. Are you beginning to see the possibilities here? I am your main connection to the switchboard of souls. I'm the magic man. It's the dark end of the street. How do you like it now? He records it all. Everything. And gives it to you. Why me? There's more to this whole thing than you think. Give us the tape right now! You don't know how high up the food chain this thing goes. Do you know what this tape could do if it got out? I see the world opening up and swallowing us all. This is conspiracy paranoia. The issue isn't whether you're paranoid, Lenny. The issue is whether you're paranoid enough. No more games. Whatever's going on, you have to get out of here now. Get him out. This tape is a lightning bolt from God. It can change things, things that need changing before we all go off the end of the road. It'll be an all-out war, and you know it. No! Well, maybe it's time for a war. Oh man, cheer up. World's gonna end in 10 minutes anyway. This is a film you are statistically unlikely to have seen, and if you have, it was probably a long while ago. But this episode is a commission from Greg Downing, and we jumped at his suggestion because there is some stuff to talk about. You can, however, listen to this show and then go see the film. It is not going to spoil things, but it will make you more aware of what to keep an eye and an ear out for. There is no Blu-ray in America. I found that one out. I bought the British Blu-ray. There's fuck all on it, but it's a decent transfer. The German Blu-ray. If you're in Germany, loads of extras. The Germans have got it made. Maybe because they've had more opportunity to reconcile with their fascist tendencies than everyone else. Yikes. What a strong flavour to start with. Okay. I mean, that's just a theory. I could be completely wrong. You can, of course, buy it on DVD, but it will look not particularly fantastic. However, if you live in the States, you can stream it on Max, apparently on bundles in Hulu, and on Direct TV. And I will give you fair warning, folks, there's some nasty shit in here. This is a film noir, and it's that same kind of Chinatown, ugh, I feel so dirty at the end. Mm. Like, th th these are about uncovering horrible shit. Yeah. At least they're supposed to be. Yeah, this is a, a mid-90s example of neon noir, which is my favourite subgenre of noir. See, there's not actually that much prevalence of neon in this. Like, it doesn't look like Blade Runner. I would call this a tech noir. Would you now? Yes. Isn't that funny? Dancing in a piano tie. 4.50 to get in, but you might get shot by a Terminator. Yeah. But yeah, no, I wasn't even being facetious there. Tech Noir is actually a pretty good name for this, I think, because it's the, it's the absence of that kind of smoky saxophone. 
and it doesn't look like cyberpunk at all, like as in the, the video game, or it doesn't look like, um, say, Demolition Man. They've gone to great lengths to make to, to show you a future world. This was written in the very early 90s, late 80s, around about the time when James Cameron was writing Avatar, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's set in 1999. Hang on. It was written... Hang on, I've got a whole thing to write, okay. to say. Specifically because it's set in the very, very near future, so they didn't have to change much. Did you notice that at the beginning, Ray Fiennes had this massive kipper tie, and then they probably thought, oh, that looks silly, we can't, have them. we can't have people wearing these. It looks like Back to the Future 2. Yeah, there is an ongoing joke about how obsessed Lenny is about his ties. He believes yeah. that it's the only thing that marks him out from the, the shitheads that he has to associate that's with. That's the payoff at the... That's why that's the payoff at the... That's silly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, like I said, you can, however, just listen to this show and then go see the film. It is not going to spoil things, but it will make you more aware of what to keep an eye and an ear out for. In brief synopsis, this is a 1995-released cyber thriller shot in Los Angeles, which has become a war zone patrolled by a heavily militarized police force. It is set only four years in the future on the eve of the millennium. And everybody's thoughts in this time of upheaval are threaded with fear that these are, in fact, the end times, which feels quaint now. I remember being there, people were like, the whole world's going to end on the dot of midnight. And like they even make fun of that in the opening. Like, someone says, what about Y2K? The DJ's like, what, sorry, what's, what's Y2K? And they're like, it's the year 2000. I'm like, you don't think people would have started calling it something like that before December 30th, 1999? Then tonight, in front of all the Rocks fans, you will go one on one with the great one. Rock laying down a challenge for the big show tonight. And go on and check your big fat ass directly into the SmackDown Hotel. Big show's gonna need a big king size bed, isn't he? <laughs> Wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute! That Millennium Clock—it's it's the Millennium Clock. Nine, ten, oh, countdown. Six, to Millennium. Four. We're counting down. Here, two. We're counting it down. But uh, yeah, she's saying the revelation end times are coming, and he's like, is that Eastern time or Pacific? Like, I was with a person in America on that night, and she was slightly under the suspicion that the world might end at the stroke of midnight, Texas time. So, takes me back. The technology at play to make it a tech noir is currently underground, rather than the kind of tech that everyone's using. And a modern day version, like, say, take Terminator Genesis would be like, everyone's queuing up for this brand new iPhone and the operating system. The operating system is Skynet! <sighs> um, the technology at play is currently underground, and it amounts to discs that record a person's experiences in first person through their eyes and beyond. We'll talk about that in a bit. It's a film noir detective story, like I say, and our full guy hero is named Lenny, and he's played by a young Rafe Fiennes. Lenny was previously a cop, but is now a dealer of these recordings, selling experiences to curious men across the board. It's always dudes. 
who will pay for thrilling violence, sex, and experiences too dangerous for them to go near in real life. Inevitably, a woman whom Lenny knows comes to find him and slips him a recording before being chased off by police. The disc contains extremely incriminating evidence, and suddenly Lenny is out on the run from a sadistic killer and trying to unravel a conspiracy, accompanied by his long-suffering friend Mace, played by the marvellous Angela Bassett. When I just got done talking about her in Wakanda Forever, and she mm-hmm. is fantastic in this movie. Like, she is every time the movie feels like it's about to get unhinged and start flapping about the place, she comes in and anchors it with this fierce glance. She's so great. This was directed by Catherine Bigelow, following Near Dark in 1987, Blue Steel in 1990, and Point Break, which I still cannot believe we haven't covered, in 1991. You want me so bad, it's like acid in your mouth. She would go on to film K-19 The Widowmaker and Zero Dark Thirty and Detroit, winning the Best Director Oscar for The Hurt Locker in 2008, making her the first woman to do so. That was, I will remind you folks, the 82nd Academy Awards. Yes, yes it was. And do you know how many women have won it since then? Oh boy. Uh, Patty Jenkins? Nope. Uh, oh, wait, hang on. Chloe Zhao. Chloe Zhao for Nomadland, correct. And uh, I know Patty Jenkins was nominated for Monster. Mm. Eight women have been nominated. Uh, sorry, no, seven women have been nominated. Jane Campion for the other winner was nominated twice. Okay. Who? Who's the third? The third is Jane Campion. She did not win for The Piano. She did win for um, Power of the Dog. That's in, in over a hundred years of Oscars. Three women. Three. Have won seven have been nominated. Those percentages are a little, little off, a little skewed. I'm the king of the world! Uh, let's talk about a dude instead of Catherine for a long while. Uh, the film was well, produced. Her Wikipedia page does. So, the uh, film was produced and most significantly written by the aforementioned James Cameron, something which becomes abundantly clear as you watch it. Bigelow is a very technical director with a cold eye and the ability to capture chaos with apparent controlled ease. But Cameron's fingerprints are all over the story and what it's saying, including the moments that his points become irritatingly diffuse near the end. We will come to that in due course, but this is a cult favourite that made no money for several reasons, and we shall now delve into those. Also, it's noteworthy that Cameron, one of my all-time favourite directors for all of his faults and frustrations, endangerment and slave driving of his cast and crew, shares something crucial with my actual favourite director, whose father, James Cameron, paid the kidnapping ransom to save the life of, this is true, Guillermo del Toro. And that is that both of them write their own movies. The Del Toro, Kronos Mimic, Devil's Backbone, Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy 2, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, The Shape of Water, Nightmare Alley, and his version of Pinocchio. David S. Goya wrote Blade 2, but Del Toro is credited with part of the script for The Hobbit. James Cameron wrote every film he's ever directed. The Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2, True Lies, Titanic, Avatar, and Avatar 2. But also... Piranha 2 The Spawning, which we covered back during our uh, James Cameron season on the Patreon. But he also wrote First Blood Part 2, Rambo, and Strange Days, and Alita Battle Angel most recently. 
He also had a go at writing a Spider-Man movie in the 90s, which was going to have Leo DiCaprio as Peter Parker. And we talked about that as well on a fairly astonishing Patreon After School Club episode early last year. Just after Avatar 2 came out, I was interested in seeing what, what is all this Spider-Man stuff? The short of it is the movie ended up not happening because of an old grievance with Canon Films who had copy-pasted James Cameron's Rambo film into a Chuck Norris bootleg called Missing in Action. James just, he's always one to bear a grudge. What this seems to signify is that the films mean what the creators mean. They know what they wrote and they film it as such. They're not just picking up someone else's script and going, I love it, boom, and then just doing their version of it. This comes from the heart in both cases for good or for ill. So it definitely helps that Jim worked very closely with Catherine Bigelow. They were in fact married from 1989 to 1991, and the fact that they were still able to get this made several years after divorcing speaks to Catherine's resilience to his bullshit. She managed two years of marriage after her, from 97 to 99, when Judgment Day didn't happen, Linda Hamilton had a go and managed Two years. Before Catherine, producer of The Terminator, Aliens and the Abyss, Gail Ann Hurd managed four years from 1985 to 1989. And before that, from 1978, Cameron managed six years with his first wife, the lady who shares my wife's maiden name, Sharon Williams. And he married her in the year I was born. That's so weird. Isn't it, Jeff? And finally, in the actual year 2000, in this timeline, he met Susie Amis, who he is still with. After, at this point, coming up for 24 years fifth time lucky or maybe she just lets him have his way all the time i don't know she <laughs> sends him on long trips into deep sea vessels yes oh, oh, off you go yes, yes. off you go to sea off you go steve <laughs> zisu jim yes go. jim i am having a fucking spa day anyway enough about his personal life though it is notable that poor Catherine bigelow has only one thing written in her personal life section on wikipedia her two-year marriage to jim cameron Let's talk strange days. Let's. Okay, it starts with a proof of concept, which is one of these what are they called video situationals it's a it's a I'm head not sure game what the actual rig is called like the, the, the device that you wear to record them. it's called a it's squid called a, squid. a superconducting quantum interference device yes feels like they thought of squid first and then words that that sort of explained it afterwards uh, it's, it's very kind of Cronenberg-esque. Like, Cronenberg would have made it out of flesh. Yes, he would, yeah. It would have looked like a hand, and it would have actually, like, the the electrodes would have had to be pinned Buried into, into you, your yeah. skull. The fingers would, like, go into your head yes. a bit. Okay, so, actually, on that note, you studied this film, didn't you? I did, you? yes. So, uh, when I was doing my English degree in the late 90s, in my third year... I took an optional media studies module called Cyber Studies. 
cyber studies. Cyber studies. Who could it, it was not the year say, 1999. Yes, if you were a nerd in the 90s, you'd, everyone, everyone in the whole school was crammed into that classroom. Well, there was only a handful of us there doing it, so clearly I was one of the winners. Nerddom was not mainstream yet. It wasn't. Ever experienced the new wave, next wave, dream wave, or cyberpunk? We can learn about all the hacker stuff. In there, it's a world where you're judged by what you say and think, not by what you look like. A world where curiosity and imagination equals power. I want to thank you for your point of view. I know how difficult it must be for you to overcome all those years of upper-middle-class suburban oppression. <laughs> must be tough. And this was a flipping art college. Believe me, there were nerds there. <laughs> they were all theatre nerds. On the moon, nerds get their pants pulled down and they are spanked with moon rocks. But yeah, so in, in this module, we covered Existence. Yeah, um, I actually saw that in a cinema on the day I went to Edinburgh University to check it out to see if I might potentially go there. Mm. Thankfully, I didn't, because I wouldn't have met you if I didn't go to York. Okay. So, Existence, Existence. which barely anyone talks about. But it's when we it's saw a David Cronenberg movie about a games console that you plug into your ass. It's a giant kidney. <laughs> and it's got, like, you have to, to, to put this video game on, you have to get a fucking Willem Dafoe to put a road drill in your spine. <laughs> and it's like, oh, heavens no, we got to talk about that. Maybe not a full show, but an after-school club on That's Not How Any Video Game Would Ever Become Popular. No. Would be no. great. What no, the third although film? certain people are working on things you implant in the body. No. And guess what they look like? Kidneys? The ports in existence. <laughs> they get infected really fucking quickly. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what was the third I've film? said it before and I'll say it again. Dystopias are supposed to be cautionary tales. They are not You're instructional not meant manuals. To do it. So yeah, existence, strange days. And a little movie that had just come out that year called The Matrix. That's right. <sighs> I was one of the first people to actually study The Matrix in college. I was there. <laughs> okay. Like, we knew hardly anything about it at the time. So <laughs> I'm sure people who have done it since then know way more than I do. But, but when, when this film came out, it was... It, it was, in fact, way more prophetic socially than it had any right to be. Like, Cameron was sort of going, um, we've got it, like, in the, to camera, sort of, like, we're all exhausted, it's two in the morning, and you want us to say nice things about the film. Um, it's about how we got to love each other, said James Cameron. And then, they, you know, that was his six-second soundbite. Okay. Technological dystopias are always going to be prophetic. To some degree. No one ever predicted how much communication and phones would be a huge, huge deal. True, but if the, if the director is People still on phone booths in these dystopias. Yeah. Not necessarily about the tech, but about how people interact with the tech. If the directors and writers are at all understanding of how human beings work, then it's, it's that thing where you know enough about how a person will behave that you can almost predict and, and prophesy how they will act, but if, it's just because you know the patterns. If you're tapped into the human condition and you've been observant, yeah. sometimes you might do it by accident. Exactly. I think some of these things happen by accident because the philosophical conclusions he reaches almost stink of meddling. The way that Harvey Weinstein came in and forced Guillermo del Toro to turn Mimic into something far less existentially worrying and far more crappy monster movie. Mm. We will cover Mimic someday, folks. We will do it. But yeah, the actual tech, it's, it's kind of just like a, a head 
web thing that can fit underneath wigs. Yeah, it's, and they it's keep a load going of back to it. Sensors and electrodes that sit on your noggin scalp, but no, they sit on your hair, and that's another reason why they wouldn't work. But that's anyway beside the point. The hair thieves. <laughs> it's it's electrodes that that sit on your on your head and pick up on. The feed from your optic nerve, mm-hmm. from your auditory nerves, your olfactory nerves. The idea is that it it absorbs all of the things that you are seeing, hearing, feeling, all of your sensations and your emotional experiences. You still have to close your eyes, though, otherwise you see double. Well, when you're recording, you don't, because the idea is that they want to record what you're seeing. Oh, right, yeah, when no, you're playing it back... Uh, yes, they suggest yeah. that you have to close your eyes because otherwise you'll see the reality layered on to what the feedback is. Giving. So effectively, uh, it's it's a it's a recorder that you put on your head and it records not just what you see yeah. but everything you experience. Absolutely, like if you okay, if you were making TikTok videos. Yeah. With a GoPro strapped to your head. Fucking hell, the POVs would be disgusting. Yes, they would. Um, But that would be the visual element of these pieces of media. Although, notably, one of the first things we get to see is the can I fuck it paradigm, which is always inherent to every technology. Oh, it's the first thing everybody said. As soon as the wheel got made, the the first guy that the first caveman showed that to went... (laughs) I mean, can I fuck it? And he was like, "No, nah. it's a big, it's a big rock." Is this why everything Cronenberg writes about looks like a vagina? Because he's like, you know what? I'm just going to go straight there. Then we can move past it. All right? Can I fuck the chest hole of James Woods in Videodrome? I'd rather not. There you go. Put them off quickly. <laughs> anyway, uh, so. Uh, the first thing we watch is something from a bank robbery, a, a, a restaurant robbery. Uh, yes, yeah. From a bunch of racist idiots. So it's shot very frantically and it looks like handicam footage. Yeah. It's not handicam footage. Bigelow and Cameron had to come up with a rig that would feasibly shoot this in a way that did not feel as smooth and professional as handheld steady cam of the day. They had an 18-pound pogo cam, which was used to show the chase sequences in Point Break. This one they managed to get all the way down to eight pounds. Of course, they were still shooting on film. I know, the human head weighs eight pounds. You gotta wear a thing on your head that weighs as much as your head. That can be quite unbalanced. Or we could just take your head off and strap this thing to your neck. Jim, no, No, sit down. You can't stop, okay, right. Any other suggestions as to how, Jim, Jim, Okay, I will say yes, and you can keep your hand up if it doesn't require the severing of... Yeah, I thought so. (sighs) No, it doesn't matter that he's a trooper. No one will care, Jim. You'll be Jim the beheading director, writer, producer. It's noteworthy, by the way, folks. This was a Lightstorm Entertainment production, which means our old buddy Lawrence Kazanoff was part of the producing team. He was exec producer, the man behind such greats as Food Fight and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. In fact, the cinematographer went on to do Mortal Kombat Annihilation. So just be grateful that this exists and Kazanov did not try to sell it in a back alley somewhere. <laughs> Matthew F. Leonetti. Uh, he went on to do Star Trek First Contact. Uh, he started in 
uh, around about Raise the Titanic, which sank like a stone uh, produced by Lord Lou Grade, but clearly Jim would have watched that when studying up for Titanic. But before that, he did The Chicken Chronicles and The Bat People. He was also the cinematographer on Poltergeist, Commando, Jumping Jack Flash, Dragnet, Red Heat, Action Jackson, Action Jackson. Ooh, Dead Again, Kenneth Branagh. I like that one. Mm, Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, Scott Emma Thompson. I know, I know. That was the brief, they briefly made it while married. Mortal Kombat Annihilation, Star Trek First Contact, Species 2 but not 1. Star Trek Insurrection, that's the one that friggin... Frakes directed. Rush Hour 2, but not one. Yep. Too Fast, Too Furious, but not one. Mm. <laughs> I think we're seeing a pattern. Here. Dawn of the Dead, the Zack Snyder one. Fever Pitch, no, not that one. The Baseball one with Jimmy Fallon, directed by the Farrelly Brothers. His most recent ones, The Three Stooges, Movie 43, and Dumb and Dumber 2. Okay, so we start with this robbery that goes really tits up, and the uh, guy who we get the POV from falls off a roof. Now, he's obviously he's being played by a stuntman who's falling off an actual roof that he's been hanging onto into one hopes a mattress, as opposed to what Jim would have offered him, which is a, a, a non-branded dumpster full of broken glass and used needles. <laughs> well, you asked why people always have to fall on cars. I think this is why, because then they can put, like, padding, and it at least looks like something yeah. relatively solid. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's more just the uh, the fact that when people are like, oh, they fell on a car, they're definitely dead, as opposed to just seeing what actually happens, which is really horrible. Like there was, I think there's maybe one film I've ever seen called Enduring Love, uh, where someone falls out of a hot air balloon, and it's not too high up, it's like 200 feet in the air, and I'm just like, oh God. Oh, God, that actually would happen if you fell into a field in England from 200 feet up. Oh, you didn't have to go so hard, movie, but it does. Daniel Craig's in that, and Reese Iffen's obsessing about him. Mm. Anyway, we snap out of that, and Lenny's like, oh, God, oh, you know I hate it when they die. And to like, th- this is the least interesting part of the film when you're watching it now in the 2020s, because you're like, okay, loads of video games, loads of POV stuff, loads of GoPro stuff. It's just, uh, this has been, if you're young enough, you've grown up with this all the time. Yeah. So but, what was astonishing back in 95 is is commonplace Well, the, dis- the distinction, the, the point that they're trying to get across is that because this is recorded feed from actual human beings, yeah. it's, it's not, you, that you cannot tell yourself, this is a stuntman. You cannot tell yourself, this is Because you're feeling what they're work. feeling. You're feeling what they're feeling. You're experiencing what they went through. Which is uh, one of the fundamental difficulties in translating what we're seeing on the screen to the audience, because we're stuck in the headspace of these people, and it's up to the actor wearing the squid to go, oh, 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 and we're relying on them. There is one really great moment. I mean, there's loads of really great moments in this film, but I think my favourite, emotionally speaking, was where... Lenny uh, meets a friend who has legs cut off at the knee and is in a wheelchair and he gives him uh, a squid to wear that uh, is just the experience of running along a beach and saying hi to a pretty girl who's also running in the opposite direction. And this actor cries with joy. It's a wonderful bit and unusual for Catherine Bigelow, who is not very sentimental. She's not sentimental, but if you look at her films, the way she conveys... The emotions of men, specifically, mm-hmm. is really solid. It's it's 
convincing, more convincing than you would generally expect from action movies. So Lenny's trying to sell or buy at this point. Right, so uh, Lenny is buying. From the Weasley rat guy who Tick. was in Tick, who was in Super Mario Brothers as Iggy Cooper. Mm. And, uh, or, or I can't remember, Fisher Stevens was the other one. Yeah. Morton Cooper, I don't know. And uh, he's also the guy who's like, you guys have nothing to worry about in Ferris Bueller, and they go take that Ferrari for a drive. So the, the part of the point of this setup is that it allows us to see who Lenny is and how he interacts with this world that he has found himself in. Um, I don't think we find this out at this exact moment. It comes later, but Lenny used to be a cop. Yeah. He used to be on the Vice Squad. There are things that we catch up with further down the line that tell us that Lenny actually has quite a strong sense of empathy and that it's possible, although this is not fully explored, that this may have led to him not being ideally suited to working for the vice squad of the LAPD. And what he's found himself in at this stage is he's a, he's a dealer in these experiences, but he is not directly involved in the procuring of them and the, the making of them. So he's the guy at the front who is really good at dealing with the client, at, at pinpointing what it is that the client wants, that the client really wants to feel. What is the drug that will buy that person in and get them hooked on this particular experience? He then goes to Tick, who then deals with other people who Lenny would rather not get his hands dirty with. His fence. Um, his, yeah, exactly. To organise the manufacture of tailor-made clips. These are, like, he has... Tick's like, oh, man, you got to give me some money here, man. You know, my player is covered in blood. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, the blood covers up the cum. It does. Um, <laughs> and also, you're not really making your point very well here, dude. Um, maybe you're in the wrong job. Um, but yeah, so the the actual um, making the, the bespoke clips is not Lenny's job. He has a handful of ideas and, and sort of little samples that he can throw out there as fishing lines to draw people in, but then he finds out what they actually want and he goes away and gets it made special. And presumably, this is why he is so good at what he does, why he is able to live the lifestyle he is when every Everybody else in this world is like considerably lower on the, the um, ladder than he is and he likes to think that he can keep his hands clean and not actually consider himself to be a part of all of those shitheads below him. It's not me. Yeah. He's Martin Blank. Yeah. He's a weasel. Absolutely. <clears throat> I well picked up on by the way. Uh, there's a point that I, I just got hooked on when I was a, when I was a teenager. Um, where he talks to a guy who seems very nervous in a restaurant, and he seems relatively well to do. He's not like a, a, a like a crackhead. Like he's he's in a suit, and he seems like a quite a meek businessman. And uh, he gives him an experience where where the guy's like, oh, 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 and he says, "You were just an eighteen-year-old girl taking a shower." And I feel like he's just he's talked to this guy, worked out. You know, there's some. Trans leanings yeah, there, no, 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 he does. and he kind of wants to be in that body. That's the conversation leading up to it. Yeah. This is what I mean about the empathy. He talks to the guy, and he's sort of he's just describing what it is in a very broad, vague terms. Mm. But he just throws in these little ideas, and you can see he is watching the guy for when his eyebrows go up. When mm -hmm. does he turn towards Lenny? What suggestion makes him interested? Which, by the way, there there is absolutely a quite beneficial industry that could come from this in terms of sex work with a lot less of the danger. 
in terms of, you know, okay, so I'll, uh, you'll be in my body. You won't even see what I look like in the mirror, so you won't know, but you can feel what I feel and have that instead of the current modern-day equivalent is POV porn, which looks almost exactly like at least one of these videos where two ladies are getting it on. Mm -hmm. And it's like, have you ever wanted to have tits and have a lady go down on you? Okay. But this is the other thing as well. And this this beginning bit when uh, Lenny talks about, I don't want this clip, I don't deal with, he calls them blackjacks, which are the, the snuff clips, so yeah. things where the, the wearer dies at the end. Or... I'm assuming, where other people are killed. Yeah, indeed. Because he wants to believe yeah. that everybody involved in this is paid yeah. and it's consensual and he does not, like I said, he doesn't want to get his hands Trying to keep it. it safe. But at least him having that line allows us to go, well, you're a weasel, but you've got one scruple. Yeah. That when, when Martin says of, of the Greenpeace boat, it'll be so easy, no way... I have scruples. Indeed. And you're down to your last one, pal. Interesting. I, I could be wrong, but I think Greg actually requisitioned Gross Point Blank. So, yeah. yeah. Greg and go. I on these particular, this particular character type. Yeah. Also, notably, as I mentioned in the discussion with him earlier today, Greg's favourite movie is Memento. And this movie deals with memories. And it conceptualises memories. Not only, and in a way that is thematic, but not... The focus. But Greg's fascinated by memories, and frankly, so am I. In terms of our experiences, our memories, are they what we are? And if you take those away, what are we then? How much of our brains are we? There's a big ship of Theseus thing going on. Absolutely. How much of our memories can we trust? I have a thing going on where I know things that I remember as being, this is how it happened, and it's very clear in my head, Mm. but then... Something comes to light further down the line, and I realise, oh, how I remember that thing is not actually what happened. Mandela effect. Some people. Where did we hear somebody saying some people say that the Mandela effect is because of alternate timelines, and you're getting a a bit of shadow memory from an alternate self? (sighs) What? I kind of like that. It's it's an interesting. It's stupid, but what is more likely is that, as we know from the fact that people have memories that they recall very vividly and very visually in spite of the fact that they were too small to remember it because people have told them about it after the fact and so they build their own image of it. (sighs) Accessing the collective unconscious through a past life experience. Also possible. That's what Ray said in Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. Ray, the sponge is migrating about a foot and a half. Uh, now, obviously, if again, if you're about my age, you will not recognise, maybe or maybe not, Sony mini discs are what these things are distributed on. I'm like, you could get one ABBA album onto there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll notice most of these clips are quite short. Yes, but the video quality is shot on film. Yeah, <laughs> and you can't do that with a mini disc. <sighs> and also, it's notable that now that they've made this rig, they put a static haze over all of the. Uh, direct POV stuff, but they do use that rig sometimes to shoot and edit scenes that leave you going, whoa, disorientated. Like someone is looking in this scene and we cut to someone and then we cut back. And it's like, it's actually not important who was looking at that, but there's very much a sense of there are multiple perspectives going on in this crowded place full of people. Absolutely. There is one scene in this entire movie where that really, really doesn't work, and I do not like the way it's done. It's oh, yeah. very close to the end, Okay. so we'll talk about it later. Lenny goes back to his place and sticks on a... You know when in movies like uh, Minority Report, uh, a, a dad watches 
shots of their kid playing and it's like home movies and they, they watch them with sort of a half smile on their face and yet tears in their eyes. You're like, oh God, something really bad happened to this kid. He's doing that, but in a kind of remembering a, uh, a very visceral sexual physical experience with this good time gal um, who lived seemingly in Santa Barbara, kind of on the uh, Venice Beach in that area. They are rollerblading in turquoise rollerblades. Like, that is the most 90s thing you could possibly do. Yes. The only way it could be more 90s is if they were both wearing leg warmers. Again, it's notable that as they then proceed to have sex while he's wearing this rig in the, in the past, he then gets to re-experience that and feel everything about it, which is why it goes so much be- so far beyond just visual or even just visual and audio. Yeah. Uh, You'll notice he's wearing a bandana in that scene to cover up the fact that he'd have been wearing the rig to record it. Yeah. Uh, because if he'd been wearing a wig at that point, it would have looked very obvious that that's what we were dealing with. Yeah, there is one point where he's trying to sell this as a concept to a guy and then he puts it on his head and then says, there you go, and then just puts another wig on this guy's already voluminous hair. So he's Johnny Two haircuts. And I'm like, this is preposterous. And then I started to become suspicious of anybody with odd-looking hair in this movie. I'm like, you're bald, you're okay. Yeah. Um, also, this particular scene where he is interacting with this woman, it is notable how often he looks at her in a mirror mm. Mm. and not at her directly. Or he, he's watching her in performance and not her as a real person. So he is uh, besotted with the idea of who he was when he was with her. Yes, he's obsessed with the version of her that is in his head. And her name and is... he even admits this. And her name is Faith. And he has lost Faith. <sighs> One thing, James, nose there, Jim. one thing James Cameron is not is subtle. He's subtle. But, you know, he's also the, uh, the most like, guaranteed massive hit director who ever lived. And you don't get that without, by being subtle. You do not get that with subtlety and nuance and things that 90% of your audience may not pick up on. No, you do not, Surrey Bob. It's notable that the woman who saw something and, uh, is, uh, and got Lenny that disc, she ends up just sort of throwing it through the, the sunroof in his car and he finds it later and just watches it like, oh my God, a, a new disc, better watch it. Uh, her name is Iris because she saw shit. Yep. Again, kind of on the nose. I mean, it, I, I'm just lucky that Mace, the uh, woman who's really good at battering dudes, wasn't called Hope. True, although she does use a bottle of pepper spray at one point. Nice. So there we go. Okay. Anyway, around about this time, one of the reasons there's so much uh, urban unrest is the fact that uh, the biggest rapper in America, Jericho One, has very recently been found dead, seemingly murdered. And there's lots of footage of him on TV talking to large crowds. He is coded to look like Malcolm X in a hoodie. Murder, death, sentence, freedom, get to me! 
Played by Glenn Plummer, who you may remember from Showgirls as the uh, dancer, the choreographer that uh, Nomi dances with for a bit. But you're probably more likely to remember him as Tune Man from Speed, the guy that Keanu Reeves nabs the car of and then crashes. He is pretty excellent in his short role here as Jericho One, mm-hmm. coming off as, yep, that's definitely a rapper of the kind that we're gonna we got in the '90s, and the sense of uneasiness that surrounded them standing up and saying, this is some systemic bullshit, radicalizing a community that have been oppressed. But here's the thing, folks. Jericho One was murdered, and this film was released in October of 1995. He was the biggest rapper in America at the time. Less than one year later, Tupac Shakur was murdered in Las Vegas in September of 1996. A car drove up alongside his car after they'd been at a party and somebody in a blue suit shot him and then drove off. And then less than a year later in March of 1997, Christopher George Wallace, the notorious B.I.G., was leaving a party and a van pulled up alongside and somebody inside that no one got to see shot him and killed him in literally exactly the same way. I'm not a conspiracy nut, but that is at least a worrying pattern of precisely the same way of murdering two very outspoken artists who were very meaningful to the black community. The government hates rap. You know why I say that? Because they don't arrest anybody that kills rappers. They don't got no clues, no suspects. They don't have shit when it's a dead rapper. They don't fill out a police report. They don't even have a chalk line when it's a dead rapper. The cops just take a piss around the body. Yeah, smack him with the dick, smack him with the dick. Smack him with the dick, smack him with the dick. Shit, if you want to get away with murder, all you got to do is shoot somebody in the head and put a demo tape in their pocket. This is a rap killing. Let's get out of here. The government hates rap. Look at all the rappers, man. Look at all the dead rappers. I miss all these motherfuckers, man. Biggie Smalls, man. Biggie Smalls, man. Biggie Smalls gunned down outside a party in Los Angeles. Now, Biggie weighed about 400 pounds. So they had to shoot him for a while. There was some reloading in that drive-by. They don't got no clues, no suspects, a hamburger wrapper, nothing. Jam Master J, man, Jam, man. I miss Jam, man. I miss that motherfucker. Jam Master J, gunned down in a recording studio in Queens, okay? They had surveillance footage of people coming in and out. They ain't arrest nobody. It's like the guy came in the studio, shot Jay, recorded an album, then left. <laughs> they ain't getting nobody. No clues, no suspects, not an older Dita, nothing. Tupac Shakur, man. Tupac Shakur, man. Yo, Tupac was gunned down on the Las Vegas Strip after a Mike Tyson fight. Now, how many witnesses do you need to see some shit before you arrest somebody? Shit. 
More people saw Tupac get shot than the last episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> the government hates rap, man. And only rappers get gunned down like this. But I tell you right now, if Billy Joel, Elton John, and David Bowie got shot, they'd have Bruce Springsteen's house surrounded. The government hates rap. And only the good rappers are dead. Only the good ones. Biggie dead. Tupac dead. Vanilla Ice still alive. So, Juliette Lewis is Faith, and uh, Lenny just can't let her drop. He uh, goes to see her singing at a club, and she is doing Courtney Love when she sang with Hole. And specifically, she's, like, gyrating her body. She's really great physically in this movie, and just looks like she's just screaming her heart out on stage. And she looks the part. And he goes up to talk to her, but she's living with this wretched pimp of a record producer. Uh, yes, he is, in fact, the record producer who Jericho won worked for, or worked with. Is he now? Yes. And he's really angry because, like, his best guy has just been suddenly killed. His name is Philo, and he's played by Michael Wincott, who you may remember playing a scumbag in, in literally everything, everything he's ever, he's been, ever in. been in. And yeah, he, just to illustrate it to the audience, because Jim Cameron is not exactly subtle, he slaps her around just so that we're, like, really on... on yeah, yeah. This fuck this guy. I hate pimps. Yes, indeed. Um, just uh, uh, as a, a little add-on, by the way, the reason that Lenny has gone to see Faith at this point is because he wants to recapture his faith. Faith. Mm. Um, but Faith says, "Just give up on me." Yes, she does. She cries and says, "Go away. Nobody loves you, Bigfoot." <laughs> the well, she's more angry at this point. The the crying and breaking down is a little bit later. Really? But yeah, yeah. When she He's... shouts down the elevator shaft. She's crying. Yeah, that's the later scene. This okay. is in the club. Um, There's a, that, she screams fuck off at him so many she times. Does. It's very Lots. difficult to Absolutely. follow. But he has been... Or d- differentiate the occasion. Yeah, he's been followed by an old friend of Faith's called Iris who is trying to tell him something. And for saying that as I said at the beginning, Lenny has quite a strong sense of empathy and there's a big thing about part of his character is he doesn't like to get involved in things, he likes to watch things. There is a distance between him and the stuff that he gets involved with. He's a boy. He keeps missing what Iris is trying to tell him. She calls him, he comes in and she leaves a voicemail and he walks in literally just as she hangs up. She comes to the uh, pub where he's talking to his private investigator buddy max who also used to be a cop with him and he's too distracted and he's not listening to her and he's not paying attention lenny he doesn't pay attention to anyone exactly angela bassett in in the the emotional peak of this film pretty much screams in his face i love you you dumb fuck but she doesn't say those words she just says you ever love someone that you just really want to protect he says that's to her that's the thing and she's like yeah yes Lenny yes I do know what that feels like and it just sails right by his ear and then Lenny sort of slumps down and goes yeah it's the pits man it's like kick him you could kick him now mate kick him in the stomach we will forgive you Um, but yeah he, he sees all this stuff that is a distance from him but the stuff that's actually happening within him and immediately in front of him he misses completely so then he gets handed in a way that just breezes past both of us an incriminating 
disc, which is not the one that Iris was trying to give him, because it focuses on Iris. I am going to have to be careful with how I describe this, because it is fucking gut-churning, folks. Uh, let me be tactful. Uh, it is Iris's murder, and assault prior to the murder, and it involves interplay with uh, one of these head rigs. I think we can probably just leave it there. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it, just... it's enough to make Rafe Fine's character physically vomit, and I was like, thank you for showing us how we, as the audience, should definitely be feeling, as opposed to, that was really effective. Yeah. Uh, the, the only time I could actually bear to watch this was when we were seeing it with Catherine Bigelow's commentary over the top. Right. And every other time we've seen the film, I've yeah. averted my it's eyes. It's really, it's too much. really hard. And unfortunately, if you cut <clears throat> it out of the film, the film doesn't really make much sense. Mm. Yeah, and it well the thing is it is it is not desperately graphic. Mm. What it is is the implications of yeah. it are so horrendous. Specifically, the implications that uh, Ray finds handily shouts at the audience. Oh, he's doing this, which means this. And you're like, okay. I but you know what? That's fine. At that like, point, I'd rather he yelled it than I had to see like, it. Oh, she doesn't like hot sauce. <coughs> he's definitely putting hot sauce on that taco he's giving her. <laughs> it's it's like that, oh. folks. Uh, like a horrendous thing that gets to him on a very visceral level because of course he knew this woman but he feels a need to not specifically avenge her but make sure that it doesn't happen to Faith because she's linked to this yeah. so a lot of the movie he's just running around trying to protect this person who's like telling him to fuck off absolutely and again anybody who finds out about this clip and these people are the lowest of the low these are the scum that Lenny hangs out with everybody responds to it in a way that is like oh mm. that is fucking horrendous why would anybody do that the yeah. only person who would do that is clearly severely fucking messed unhinged. up in the head yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but like I said uh, earlier, that that was one of the major reasons this is almost impossible to market to general audiences. Much like 8mm, it's a snuff film within a sci-fi film intended, I mean generally intended, for just regular adult audiences. Mm -hmm. But you can't just like throw this on TV and hope for the best. Yeah, There's going to be some people going, whoa... If what you, the heck was that? Yeah, if you do it too much, then it ends up becoming something that is desensitised. To the film's credit, this scene happens once and then is riffed on again later, but with a variation that is quite significant. So again, if you take out this earlier one, mm. you don't really get the parallel of the later one. And it, again, it's kind of a, it's a plot-bearing, grim artefact. Yeah. It's not the only thing that made sure this movie wasn't going to really hit the fact that it has no particular star power people were not flocking to Ray Fiennes films in those days no. Angela Bassett was not drawing crowds she did in uh, How Still I Got Her Groove Back Stella was a 20 million dollar romantic drama got 40 million dollars at the box office success Strange Days cost 42 million made 17 million <gasps> So then oh, he goes to see a dodgy ex-cop played by Tom Sizemore, who was in Heat this same year. Uh, and his name is Max, and he is wearing an absurd wig. And do you know why it's an absurd wig? Because he was in Heat this year, and he's he as bald as a plucked chicken. <laughs> so I'm like, why are you wearing the hair of that blonde surfer guy from Point Break? Nothing about this makes sense, unless... And it just made me think... Well, time to replenish the hot dog roller. Oh, no, it is encrusted with filth. Oh, well, let's sell it anyway. 
Now this is just between me and you, smashed hat. Ha, diggity dog, we've got him, Mr. Simpson. Now let's... Mr. Simpson? One hot dog, please. I am wearing a subtle thing that won't tell you that I'm actually filming this. The giant blonde wig that gives him grunge guitarist's hair is less subtle than a giant 10-gallon cowboy hat in orange with a big camera lens poking out of it. So I'm like, automatically, he, he's like, oh, whoever, whoever made this film is one sick puppy. And I'm like, okay, can we just get through this scene so that we can, so that our hero, our private eye, who's like, it's not actually his job to be a detective. He, he's a dealer. He just happens to have police training. Hmm. And there's a point where he does actually have to, like, someone sneaks in and films themselves in first person holding a box cutter to his throat and just ever so slightly cuts him, which he then looks in the mirror and goes, oh, God, that person really was here. Ah!" And then he's, you know, just, like, going around the house like a cop, going back to his training. And he does, to that end, come off as believably a man living in two worlds, the past where he did one thing and the present where he is doing another and would kind of like to stop. Mm Kind of like gross point blank. Mm -hmm. Uh, but Max does say something significant, which is, you're not paranoid enough. I hold that, forget paranoid, it's how paranoid are you? What Renegade Cut talked about while he was mainly focusing on the militarized police, we will get there, folks, uh, is that paranoia is the opposite of trust. And Tom Sizemore's character, uh, Max, has kind of become nihilistic in these end times. He stopped trusting everybody and everything, and to him, nothing matters anymore. Yeah, which is a reflection of the world that's going on around him, and I think this is something that people can probably identify with today. Everybody in this world is scared. They are all dominated by fear. Even the people behind the riot shields, with the rifles, wearing the jackboots, they are scared. They are behaving the way they are because they are terrified. And something that Lenny is trying to provide is an escape from that. And that's why he tends to steer away from these clips that go too far. Because he knows that the point of what he's doing is utterly voided if all he can bring people is more fear. Okay, so Angela Bassett uh, uh, turns up kind of at the beginning of Act Two. Like a lot of the first act is just principle and premise, and then she turns up because Lenny's about to get the shit beaten out of him, and he can't throw a punch, so she's going to do it for him. Yeah, there is very little initially to explain who Mace is. Yeah. Uh, except that she is Lenny's friend, and when Lenny is in shit, Mace comes to bail him out. Yeah. And the and, but but the way Angela Bassett conveys this, you punk, with such long suffering, I'm here again. It's like she's what dealing did you with her teenage son. Exactly. It's okay, yeah. baby. Which drug dealer threatened to cut it off? Yeah, yeah. And it's not until uh, like. And whose ass do I have to kick today for you, Lenny? Towards the end of the movie, we find out why they have this connection and why she seems to feel like she owes him over and okay. over again. Go into that because it actually does justify why she hangs out with him, yes, and it so is also subtle and quite complex. It is. It is. So uh, Mace has she's a single mother to all intent and purposes the father of her child is in prison 
And there is a flashback towards the end of the movie where we see how she and Lenny met. The cops had come to their house to arrest her husband, boyfriend. She came home from work and he was just being led out by the cops. And She gets really angry with him. She slaps him and she keeps saying, how dare you do this in front of your child? Whatever it is he's done that he's being been arrested for, which we never find out, but she says he's doing hard times, so we can assume it's pretty serious. Their, their kid, Xander, has been dragged into this somehow. When she goes into the house to find Xander, he is in his room, looking pretty relaxed and happy, reading a story with Lenny. Lenny is there with the Vice Squad, and while the arrest and whatever shit has gone down involving that is going on, Lenny has recognised there's a child here who needs to be protected from seeing what is going on. And so he does the thing that... John Connor does in Terminator 2. Come on, Danny, come and show, show me, me your room. room. Yeah. Um, and he's. this, again, speaks to this empathy that Lenny has, that he understands really, really well what people want to see, and that's why he's good at dealing these clips and, and getting the right thing for the right client, but also knowing what people don't need to see and what he needs to try and protect them from and shield them from. Again, having that bright line allows us to sympathise and empathise with him as a character. But this is around about the time that Mace is standing over him while he plays gets a serious case of the poor me's about Faith. Again, she's practically saying, there's better for you, and it's right here. But he, there is a moment, actually, when she's like, okay, Lenny, I've given you, you've got a, uh, you're on your couch, you've got a blanket, you've got food, you've got a drink, you need sleep, I am going to bed, you rest. And he's like, oh, my shoulder hurts, can you rub my neck? Rub my boo-boos. And she's like, she sat there going, okay, I will rub your shoulders. And he's like, he goes to fall asleep on her lap, and it's like, for the love of God, Lenny, she needs to sleep too, will you let her go? Okay, that does actually make his turn at the end of the film a little bit more like, okay, he's going to stand up and be a bit more of an adult rather than her son. Yeah. <clears throat> so he's on the trail of this conspiracy and his cop training's coming back, but we finally get to see the disc that was given, that was dropped into his car by the now dead uh, Iris. And it's Iris in a car with Jericho 1, driving on the LA freeway uh, at night, and they're getting pulled over by a pair of cops. The same two cops who were chasing Iris, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, the kingpin himself, and Bill Fickner, Confederated Products himself, who plays kind of the, the, the ratty little beta to Vincent D'Onofrio's angry butthead alpha. And they get uh, uh, dragged over and then driven around to like a, a, a an out of the way underneath the freeway area. I'm like, shit. Everything about this looks horrendously hellishly familiar. And that's why this film is quite scary to watch. Jim Cameron, when they were uh, filming T2, knew about the LA riots, which occurred just afterwards around about that time because of the Rodney King beating. 
which was incredibly close to the location of that biker bar that Schwarzenegger first turns up in. Now, for folks who may be a bit too young for the whole Rodney King, a man was filmed being beaten by multiple police officers after he had already given himself up. Yes, he was black. Yes, they were white. Yes, they looked like fucking fascists. And somehow they got cleared of all charges and walked free from a corrupt fucking court. I'm gonna let Bill Hicks put a little spin on that one. I saw footage over there of the Rodney King trial. I think I figured out why the LA riots occurred. <laughs> Did you guys see these cops testifying, man? Do these guys have balls or what, man? These guys carry their balls in a wheelbarrow, man. Excuse me, excuse me. Man, my big balls is here to testify. Place your right testicle on the Bible. This guy, Officer Coon. Is life too fucking weird or what? Officer Coon looks in the camera and actually says, oh, that Rodney King beating tape? It's all in how you look at it. Courtroom murmurs, Jesus, what balls. I've never seen balls of this magnitude. This, he must have a specially fitted uniform in which to place these large testicles. That, that's incredible. All in how you look at it, Officer Coon. <clears throat> that's right. It's how you look at the tape. Well, would you care to tell the court? <laughs> You're looking at that. Yeah, okay, sure. It's how you look at it. Tape. For instance, well, if you play it backwards, you see us help King up and send him on his way. <laughs> Not guilty. Excuse me, excuse me. Man with big balls has just been acquitted. And I watch all the news reports, you know. Today, Officer Kuhn, Officer Hater, and Officer Keep Darky Down were acquitted on all racist charges. Here's Tom with the weather. Hi, Susie. It's 420 degrees Fahrenheit here in South Central LA right now. Probably a good time to get out of the fucking city, Susie. There's gust of lead coming up sunset. This was Bill's routine in 1992. This was what was being observed back then. And it's gotten so much worse. We've been confronted with real life horror in such volume that it started to have a deadening effect. It's the reason nobody could pin down Trump. He didn't have one rabid dog that they could catch. He had a thousand. No one knew where to look or what to do. This is the stark proof of the difference between a few bad apples and systemic corruption. So what we then see is Vincent D'Onofrio's uh, arguing with Jericho, who's on his knees, but kind of topping from the bottom. Mm. Like he's, he's dominating him he from is. a position of extreme vulnerability that he doesn't seem to notice he's in. Yeah, but one Because of the... he, he knows he's a massive 
deal and that they can't do anything to him, surely. Mm, Indeed. But one of the things that I really love about this scene is that in the argument between the two of them, when Jericho is threatening... I can't remember the name of the officer. I'm just going to call him Vincent D'Onofrio. When he's threatening him... He doesn't... He's not threatening him physically. Not with violence? No, absolutely not. He threatens... Not with, I'm going to fuck your mother. To satirise him. I will immortalise you in song. Exactly. He says, you're going to be in my next song and this is what I'm going to tell the world about you and your ilk. And that is the thing that tips Vincent D'Onofrio over the edge. Men are afraid that people will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. Yeah, but the point... Of, of his terror is that he will be made to look stupid in front of the rest of the world. And that is enough to make him decide to shoot the most famous rapper in the United States today. I'd call that a pretty wide fucking error of judgment. And try to cover it up by trying to kill all the witnesses. The one that gets away is Iris. She is eventually hunted down. And brutally murdered in a fashion that's so horrendous that it kind of, it just throws the whole movie and so and, and this is why Lenny's trying to find the conspiracy. Indeed. So as it turns out, Philo, that's Michael Winkart, was the, the pimp record producer, was spying on Jericho, whom he suspected was trying to drop him from his label. Absolutely. So this is why Iris was had video footage of everything that had gone on. Yeah. Be, not because of any kind of um, trying to incriminate the police. No, it's nothing to do with Just to spy on a rapper. It just Philo wants her to spy on and surveil his employee, and this, if it got out, would be the end of his career. I also thought that it was like a police hit. Like mm. There's a point when a large articulated lorry drives way in front in a way that seems almost like it was predetermined, like they had to funnel him off into this side road so that they could professionally execute him. But the whole thing comes from a bruised little ego, mm. yeah. from an angry, jackbooted thug. The chaos of that... Because Lenny goes to, uh, during the, it's now the New Year's Eve, and they're tr- they've got this evidence, they're trying to get it to the police commissioner, who's an old, white, crusty guy. And I'm like, the way this works is, like, even Pixar get this. The way this works is you give it to him, he's like, thank God you got this. And then crushes it, because he doesn't want any evidence getting out that would then lead to a chain that leads all the way up to him with that corruption. But instead... He's like, thank God you got this to me. Corruption in the LAPD? I won't stand for it. This will not stand. Dude, you've literally just seen them call in the army to deal with a party. Yeah. Uh, The commissioner in this is a straight shooter. I'm like, Jim, what fucking Candyland are you living in? This naive world, as fucked as militarized though it may look, is... Neverland in comparison to the realities we face. It is actually, aside from the fact that it is not consistent with the reality that it is trying to reflect, it is not consistent internally. Because the whole point that we have been told since the beginning of this film is that the police force is militarised and 
fascistic and domineering of the people. Mm. And this this man who is in charge is so offended by the idea that two of his men, one of his men, in fact, just the one, just the one, because Bill Fickner doesn't actually do the act of killing Jericho. He doesn't it's even, all on Vincent D'Onofrio. He doesn't even lean out behind Vincent D'Onofrio and go, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the, this one guy is the focus of all of the commissioners' upset and resentment and how dare you bring the name of the force into disrepute. It's the Everybody bad standing apple around fallacy. you is bringing the force into disrepute. The way you are operating your city uh-uh. is bringing the force into disrepute. Because if you remember, he holds up this... like He finds Vincent D'Onofrio, who has been handcuffed to a lamppost... Or a, a, a band... A pylon. A pylon by Angela Bassett in a fucking kick-ass scene where she flattens this guy with bare feet. She fights Vincent D'Onofrio in a Bill sequin party dress. Brings them both down, handcuffs them together, and then locks them to this rig. And then... It's beautiful. The jackbooted fucking fascist cops turn up and start beating the living fuck out of her in like slow motion she had already given up her hands were up and that is Cameron going look brutality on someone who's already given up but twinning it with the commissioner turning up and going now what's going on here and then holds up this disc to go I've got you you're a bad apple and then looks at everything around him this place is about to blow and goes I'm leaving and then as applesauce, bitch, that's what you're surrounded by. Getting the shit kicked out of her, the whole crowd kicks off. And by the way, they've got Skunk and Nancy on stage. It's like, okay, so LA is a powder keg at this point, and all it takes is a spark, and we're going to get race warfare on the streets. We've got a militarized police terrorizing the population of LA, acting like soldiers, and that the people are the enemy. These are the people you're supposed to be protecting. This is literally what happened as the result, the response to the age of terror. They militarized the police. They turned an insane amount of funding over to these nut jobs who then bought bear cats to drive around in and pretend they were in a war. In the meantime, terrorism or the idea of terrorism went from 9-11 to, oh, actually, it's just white guys with rifles. Well, who's going to deal with these white guys with rifles? Well, more white, more guys, white guys with guys rifles. With rifles obviously. Uh, they keep shooting just regular people who are doing absolutely nothing, like protesters with their hands up, wielding no weapons at all, getting tear gassed or even shot. People being arrested and having like a cop, once they're cuffed, they kneel on their fucking neck until they die. The disgrace that our reality is when compared with the movies. Mm, we shouldn't be watching a dystopia and going, oh, God damn, <laughs> they got it pretty good. <laughs> it's a film noir. Obviously, it was Tom Sizemore all along. Ha <laughs> ha, I was the guy who killed her in a horrible, horrible way. Why? I just like it. Great, cool. There is no great conspiracy. He literally says it's all just chaos. So he's Joker. Great. He has been... There's no systemic problem whatsoever. I'm just a bad apple. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, Yeah, so the confrontation with Max where he gets the opportunity to monologue about why he's done all of this, it is kind of chaotic. And the monologue only really brings a few things together. This is operating in that same M. Night Shyamalan space of, but if one video gets out that one cop did a boo-boo bad thing, the whole system 
gets cleaned. And it's it, it's fixed. Tis fixed now. While Angela Bassett is dealing with the shit down in the crowd, Lenny... Oh, that's okay, is... he's going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> Lenny is up in a hotel room trying to track down Faith. <sighs> he... Hands up who doesn't give a shit about Faith anymore, folks. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I can tell you who doesn't. Angela Bassett certainly doesn't. Yeah. And um, like, well, what is it with this girl? She's got beer-flavoured nipples or something. There's a moment where she tries to confront Lenny with the fact that Faith is, is no longer a part of his life. She doesn't care about him. She doesn't want him looking out for her. And Lenny's response is, it's not about what sh- what's in her head. This is not about getting her to return my affection. I made a promise that I would protect her and look after her. And that promise is still in my head. That's what's important. But Lenny, that makes the real Faith just another recording. She's just another memory that you keep looping back over. Which, again, so, makes this very much like Memento. Absolutely. So Only his wife gone, can be like, would you fuck off? <laughs> so he's gone up to this hotel to try and track her down and he finds a, a, evidence of violence and a disc that's been left for him with a recording of what appears to be Faith experiencing the same attack and murder that Iris did. He is unable to complete the watching of it. He takes it off um, and he sort of starts hunting around the suite to find her and goes into the room where it appears to have taken place but there is no sign of her there is a body covered up with a blanket in the corner he pulls it off it's not her it's philo and he is alive but has been given one of these uh, squid rigs to experience something that has been amplified up to the point where it overloads the brain. We've seen this happen with a couple of people earlier in the film. It's it's a way of... Because you can increase the intensity of the experience uh, by dialing it up, but there comes a point where the brain just can't take it anymore. And your own sensory experiences become completely overloaded with what the squid is feeding you and they just break and then everything the 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 pov for what people are experiencing when they go through this is they can kind of they can see what's happening around them but it's all overlaid with this multicolored neon static um they can hear but it's all faded and fuzzy and it's it's almost like a a state of induced catatonia Mm. and that's what's happened to philo uh, so this guy who we, we're f- about to find out from Max's monologue has orchestrated like 75% of all of this is now a burbling heap in the corner. Mm-hmm. Max Who was- then gets shot in the uh, head but with uh, Lenny's gun. Yeah. So Max explains because how's his opportunity to reveal his plan? He even has a line where he's like, oh, this is so good. I'm going to tell you. Yeah, I've got to share this with somebody. You had me monologuing. It does kind of work because we have already established that the person who murdered Iris was really gone in the head and, and not quite right or all there. And only somebody who felt that way would feel the need to share his master plan with everybody because that's what he wants is the recognition of how genius were you? How clever? were you to come up with all of this so oh and uh, during the, <coughs> the fight that then ensues they smash into a coffee table and this giant surfer wig gets whipped off and he's got a, a rig on underneath and i'm like what does this mean absolutely nothing to the movie no. it's it's not like it's, it's not like oh this suddenly changes everything it's it's almost like 
having a fight with Trump and accidentally pulling his wig would, off and well, going, well, that doesn't make any difference. We knew you were bald. Yeah, if if it turned out that, like, part of the point of how this is all exposed is that he had this running all the time, constantly, and somewhere there is a library with everything Max has witnessed. But no, we, we don't, that is not required at this point. It's a point. thread that goes nowhere yeah. based on a principle that kind of was established and amounts to not much. Indeed. Um, but Max was hired... By Philo. Because Johnny Two Wigs never turns up. Indeed. Philo hired Iris, yep. or got Iris, who was already working for him as a, a, a spy. girl, yep. to spy on Jericho. Yep. Because, as you said before, he thought that he was going to leave him for another manager, mm-hmm. and he did not want that to happen. Mm-hmm. When the, the execution of Jericho happens, which Iris witnesses accidentally, Philo does not want that tape to be made public, because if... All of his other clients found out that he was spying on his big client, then they will all leave him and mm. he will lose his business. So he burns it in the fire. So he burns that disc. There's copies. Did she make a copy? She did. Right, she, okay. The copy is the one that she gave okay. to um, Lenny. Lenny. To, in order to wipe out any evidence of this incident having happened, Philo hires Max to kill Iris and also asks Max to kill Faith who is Philo's girlfriend at this point, because Iris told Faith what had happened. In Faith. Because they're friends. In good faith. Yeah, in good faith. Um, However... She's all faithful. Indeed. Faith and Max were having an affair. Tom Sizemore and Juliette Lewis. Yeah. Now, this was the bit that I was a little bit hazy on, because the implication is that they were having an affair already. But then, Juliette Lewis says further into the conversation, we figured if he was going to be... For spying on me all the time, we might as well make the most of it. So I'm not entirely sure how their relationship came about. But either way, Faith has been in cahoots with Max this whole time. Does she know that he's the psychopath who, who murdered this girl in this very specific, very horrendous way? Yes. Oh my God. And she's just, she seems, she's playing along with it all and uh, leaning into it and participating in weird fantasies because... Yeah, the thing, the second one is them just doing some sex play and it's like, well, what if I was going to kill you? But the, the way that she frames it is, while I was with Lenny and he showed me how this rig and everything worked... Uh, I I realised that I really like being watched and recorded and, I yeah, I got a taste for it. And Max really likes watching and recording me. So Yeah, but yay. he also likes murder and rape. Yeah, so. indeed. So, you know, where do you draw the line? Yeah. Um, anyway, I so... Like at murder and rape. <laughs> well, yeah. And also just battery. So she's climbing all over Tom Sizemore. Uh, Lenny is stood there going, what the fuck? And Tom Sizemore... Lenny's there going, this is so much extra information that doesn't actually have an impact on the movie and in fact complicates things. It's no bearing on the mystery. That's all been cleared up and it's much less interesting than we thought it was going to be in the first place. Um, And then the the emotional crunch comes when Tom Sizemore goes to shoot Lenny and Faith decides that she actually doesn't want Lenny to die and knocks his arm out of the way and then they fight and... Tom Sizemore ends up hanging off the roof, holding onto his tie. Tom Sizemore and Lenny are wrestling and they go outside onto the balcony and it's a bit like you're trying to do Die Hard here and you're like, one of them's going over that balcony. Tom Sizemore gets thrown over. He's hanging onto Lenny's tie, which, like I said, has been this running gag that Lenny feels like he has to wear a tie. Uh And there's a knife sticking into Lenny's back. And I said to you, and I know I've seen this film, but it was a long time ago, (laughs) and I said... 
Is he going to pull that knife out of his back and cut the tie, thereby allowing Tom Sizemore to fall to his death? And, and that's exactly does. what happens. But folks, if you've worn a tie, most dudes here will have been at least forced to for some kind of, you know, work thing. Um, if you've ever had it pulled way too tight, imagine you're leaning over a balcony and a Tom Sizemore is hanging off the end. That You're supporting an entire Tom Sizemore just with the back of your neck. Ow. <laughs> You know what he said before to Mace that he really needed a neck rub? He's going to need even more of a neck rub after this. I honestly feel like his entire head would have come off. Quite possibly. See, James Cameron looks at that as an opportunity. Indeed. And also, did you see where he cuts the tie? Sort of in the middle. He cuts it after the knot, which means that he's got to go through two layers of fabric. If he'd cut it here before the knot... It's a bit too close to his jugular. Well, that's true, I suppose. (laughs) Impractical. The practicalities of how one cuts a tie off one's own neck. I will also note that uh, when they kill Michael Wincott's character, or at least render him brain dead, they put this rig on his head, and he's like, and then that's it. He just sort of dies, and it cuts to static from his point of view. And it's like, I kind of want this to be more like Indiana Jones. Like, if someone's brain overloads, I want there to be one thing that's really memorable about it. Like, uh, and I said specifically, like... Face melt. The, your pupils just get bigger and bigger and bigger until your entire eyeballs are black. And then I was like, maybe some black goop trickles out of your eyeball. Not red blood, because that just feels too horror movie. This is sci-fi, and it's like, all this data's fucking leaking out of you. It's just, it's just something that would make you go, and it merely make you shiver, as opposed to just nothing much in particular. I always love gruey cinematic deaths. And I feel like when we switched from practical to digital. It was a long switch time, but we don't do it anywhere near as much anymore. I've no. said this before. Yeah, because with oh, CG, as far as I understand, and if anybody has knowledge of the workings of CG and knows otherwise, then please do tell me. But it's not like with practical effects where you can go, right, we have this material, we don't know exactly what it's going to do, but we're going to throw it at this other material, see what happens, and then see what we can do with that. With CG, you have to think of it all ahead of time. It has to come out of your imagination. You can't just experiment with stuff and then work with what you've got. To the uh, credit of the makers of Blade, that had what would have been totally practical in the past, but when they t- Blade uses that serum and it turns the vampires into giant raspberries that, that explode. But it's hilarious, and I feel like that's not what they were going for. Uh, <laughs> Just, ah, more films where people pop. Anyway, <laughs> I think I started saying this, but I didn't get to the end. LA's a powder keg, it's about to blow. And they were like, who should we have on stage? NSYNC, you know, just someone to keep the crowd happy? Uh, let's go for Skunk and Nancy, who are a fucking fantastic 90s punk band uh, led by Skin. Political punk band. Political punk band. Proper punk, not Green Day punk, folks. Not what punk was about to become pop punk. <laughs> That was what punk was about to become. So Skunk and Nancy, we are going to end this show on four of their songs because this is fucking punk. 
Okay, so uh, Lenny does turn two corners at the uh, end here. Uh, one is that uh, he accepts that Faith is gone and he manages to sort of turn his back on her and just go, you know, that version of you that I'm still uh, fixated upon, it's a ghost. That is that is something that is now past and gone. So that's, you know, good emotionally speaking. And then when Vincent D'Onofrio, his face covered in blood, an L.A. cop standing right beside... Do you want to tell them why his face is covered in blood? Because Bill Fickner... <laughs> Uh, was like, me and my friend are dead! <laughs> yep. The yep. guy who did not even participate in the shooting decides his reputation simply cannot handle this and shoots himself in his own head. So Vincent D'Onofrio is staggering forwards, his face festooned with blood, pointing a gun at, at Angela Bassett and screaming at her because she's the one who uh, had him arrested and also that the police commissioner now has his number. And there are a bunch of armed military police all pointing their guns at him going, I don't know what to do. This officer's shouting at a black woman and he's pointing his gun at her, but he's a cop. I, I have no... There is no protocol for this. And she's like, just shoot the motherfucker! I think Lenny shouts, would you please shoot him? Shoot him. It, and eventually not- D'Onofrio opens fire and Lenny, to his credit, shields Angela Bassett with his own back. But luckily it's a movie and so it doesn't kill him. Take him back to where this is just a flesh wound. Same ally. I think they miss. I think he misses. Oh, no, no. He is bleeding out of his back when they... Yeah, that's where Tom Sizemore stuck him with the knife. Oh, fuck! He's double dead! Um, the yeah, it's it's not just honestly. The, this guy would drop if you punched him once in the he really would. He looks shoulder. like a weasel. He yeah. is like a human weasel. He weighs like a buck ten. He does. Angela Bassett could have frankly punched that bullet. She could have picked him up and used him to assault the cops with. as a mace. A mace, indeed. You want to know how I got the name Mace? <laughs> <laughs> I have one request, Mace. Don't ever do that to me again. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's the thing is it's not just like Vincent D'Onofrio's friend cops who are holding guns on him at this point. It's all the riot police. It's the army who've yeah. turned up at this point. Like, well, we were just there fighting are so with a many load of... guns trained on this scene. How has nobody shot him yet? I honestly, like, if it was real life, they would start opening fire on the black crowd around him. They'd be like, they we must protect our officer. They descended on the anybody with a gun and was like pulling off rife, riot helmets and... and taking guns away from them and stuff like that. It, it's very much a scene of there are more of us than there are of them, even if they are armed. Uh-huh. I know, but it's... But they've got more bullets than there are of us. And terror, when you want to terrorise your population, could be pretty effective. So anyway, it ends happily at the stroke of midnight and the year 2000 comes in, as the good year blimp tells us. And then we get the When Harry Met Sally ending. Where, uh, after being led away, uh, Ray finds is like, you know what? Actually, I do love you, Mace. Yeah. And then so runs she back goes, to kiss her. She goes off in one car, he goes off in the other car. They kind of have this moment of, yeah, bye. I'll see you downtown at the police station. And then he realises he doesn't want to let her go. And he chases after her car and pulls her out of the car. And they have a kiss. Yeah. It's nice. This whole thing plays out like an alternate reality. And just as it's leading towards this breaking point, kind of like Neo Tokyo is about to explode. Mm. It's like Akira in that regard. Uh, It feels like this thing that happens is an inevitability. But the fact that it's like, well, it was all saved. The day was saved because the police dealt with their bad apple. And then the the man and woman kiss. And also, like, 
give them props on this one. That is an interracial couple. We didn't even notice. Because again, there's plenty of things in this movie now that we take for granted. But if you remember back uh, in, uh, in 1992's Candyman, the uh, producer, I think it was a Weinstein, said the world is not yet ready for a man and a woman to kiss each other on screen if he's black and she's white. And Del Toro wanted to cast an actor of colour opposite Mira Silvino in Mimic and Weinstein said to him, not America just, is not ready. Not just an actor of colour. <laughs> he wanted to cast Andre Brower. <sighs> and we got Jeremy Northam instead. Fuck you, Harvey. Fuck you as many times as I can say that until my throat gives out. Anyway, so that's Strange Days. We hope that we did it justice. It is definitely one to see. I can see that it would become a favourite. I can also see it frustrating people, especially as it gets to the end. And the conclusion is, it's all chaos. So just get rid of... Just take out Vincent D'Onofrio and everything will be fine. It's chaos. Just get rid of the bad apples. Mm. Um, But the actual conceptual stuff there about the idea of living vicariously through the eyes and indeed the whole senses of another. I came away from this not feeling like that was necessarily a bad thing. Hmm. I'm not sure that was the intention because they kind of, they, they move off from that. Like it being, hey, it may as well just be a fucking dashboard cam eventually. Hmm. But the, I mean, the tech was, in, in the, the fiction of the film, the tech was originally developed as a surveillance device. Yeah, and by the police. It has multiple other uses. It just hasn't got to that stage yeah. yet. But it's not imperative <laughs> to the philosophical conclusion of the movie. Mm. It just becomes a MacGuffin. Yeah. It's a it's a, a, a mechanic, uh, yeah, like a game mechanic. Yeah, ultimately, if the point is to experience empathy, wouldn't that be the thing? Like, you, you stick that on Vincent D'Onofrio and show somebody who's been brutalised, and it's like, he just sort of goes catatonic, and it's like he, he kind of got a taste of what it is like to live under that boot heel. As opposed to just shooting him, there are a million movies where the bad cop or the bad dude gets shot. Mm, yeah. You know, of course, we're watching something else at the moment where every five minutes we're screaming, "Just take out Vincent D'Onofrio! It will solve so much." <sighs> Daredevil season two has such bad lighting. Doesn't it? Season three, <laughs> season three's better. We'll get through it. And Bullseye is an interesting character. Mm. Interesting. Two, zero, three. Okay, we gotta get over there. Can you borrow a dress from Cecile or something? I'm not going. What do you mean? We're going, Gant's gonna do it right there. Shut up. Liddy, park your mouth and listen. It's a setup. Think about it. Why is he sending tapes to you? To freak you? Get you to rush him without thinking? Put a bullet in you, one in her and a gun in your hand? Yeah. That sounds right. I'm going. You're gonna get yourself killed for this. For this toxic waste bitch. Your life, right here, right now. It's real time. You hear me? Real time. Time to get real, not playback. You understand me? She doesn't love you anymore. Maybe she did once. I don't know, but she doesn't now. These are used emotions. It's time to trade them in. Memories were meant to fade, Lenny. They're designed that way for a reason. 
Have you ever been in love with someone who didn't return that love? Yeah, Lenny. I Hey, Mace. You look great in that dress. I mean, better than I would. Thank you, I think. Come on, let's go. Okay, I'm going to attempt to read this week's credits for the top-tier $15 Patreon sponsors in the style of Ray Fiennes trying to do an American accent and not doing too bad a job of it. I'll probably do worse. Okay, so first off, big thank you to all of our friends on the Patreon who support us every month. You guys are the best. And our premium client base, the $15 sponsors. I don't know why I'm so from Brooklyn. Get credit every episode. So thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Poonzi, Greg Downing, the main guy. I sound like Billy Crystal in Analyze this, ah, God forbid. Jameis Enright, the man who can get me things. Jameis Enright, our man in New Zealand. Jesse Ferguson, that mook lives in time travel. Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, RIP my friend. Johan Clausen, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vahey, whom you all may refer to as the doctor. Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasko's in the house. Without him running our Discord, I would be a one-thumbed slug. Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, watch out for this guy. First off, he's got a brain on him. Second off, he's made in stop motion. Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter. You know what? My vocabulistics kind of sound a little bit like Rocket Raccoon. Timu Helisaryu, Sarah Montgomery, and Cat Esmond. Now, can I please go back to speaking Queen's English? I'm doing The English Patient with Anthony Mengele next. So, yeah, the last film that uh, Catherine Bigelow directed was uh, Detroit. And although it got decent uh, critical acclaim around the 80s in terms of freshness, it lost lots of money. John Boyega was in it. Uh, I hope she can make a comeback from that because there aren't many women directors and the fact that she had to pretty According much... According to the Oscars, there's three of them. The fact that she, to achieve a level of success that would be considered this is the peak for a director, she had to be very masculine in her ways is sad. Women absolutely can, but we need to give awards to all kinds of women like, how did Greta Gerwig not get the Oscar for Little Women? That was magnificent. This year, folks. Just saying. Barbie's right there. What do you reckon of the odds, really? I, 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 don't, I don't know. No. Just, no. 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 Even though they were kind about no. president business? No. 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 Because they're going to look at it and they're going to go, what do we represent? It's this. Isn't you think it? it's going yeah, to Oppenheimer? I think it's going to Oppenheimer. Yeah, probably. And who's going to get Farina in this season? 
Andre Brower better have a fucking five minute piece just for him. Yeah. Just Andre Brower. Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. Remember him? Oh, God. Uh, we spent our Christmas day, by the way, watching lots of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. We started from scratch again, and he was just brilliant from the word go. That is a show that is great and totally holds up, despite, maybe even because, it's all about cops. So, if you've got any homework beyond going to uh, find and watch Strange Days, it would be to watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine and just drink in Andre Brower at his absolute best. So this is four Skunk and Nancy songs that we're going to end on. Uh, we're going to begin with Selling Jesus, which is the song sung in the film. Then Weak, which was a big hit for them. Then Political. And finally, rather appropriately, Rise Up. So we will see you next week for some Star Trek as we talk about all of seasons one through four of Star Trek Discovery. We are going back to Starfleet for the first time since... 2016, folks. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out.
mess, it's a bloody mess Tears fly home A circle of angels Deep in war Cause I wanted you Weak as I am No tears for you Weak as I am No Go! Oh. 